morning, everybody. How are you today? Awesome. Just so you know, as I've been asked already a couple times, I'm okay after the Joe Burrow injury. You don't need to keep bringing it up. It's like reopening a wound that scabbed over and pouring loads of salt in it. But for the record, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but this is how mad I am at the Baltimore Ravens right now. If they were to face the Steelers in the playoffs, I'm rooting for the Steelers. And I've never said that in my life before. So anyway, uh, I'm just going to lay that there and leave it be and move on. We are in the second to last week of our message series on the book of Exodus. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the tabernacle which I know the moment you hear tabernacle, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're like, yes, we get to talk about acacia wood and bread plates and incense and all that stuff. Uh, I'm going to try to get the message out of the details this morning. uh, And the way I want to start off is to tell you about a, a conference that I went to a few years ago with some friends of mine. It was a conference that was in Wakarusa, Indiana. Is anybody familiar with Wakarusa, Indiana? There you go. All right. I had never, never known about Wakarusa until uh, this moment. And um, here's the thing about conferences. I don't know in like your work world if you ever go to like Conferences related to the work that you do, or, or you know, maybe some sort of special day-long uh, presentation to build your skills, or uh, you know, just pour into you as a as a human being. In 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 the world of ministry conferences, most conferences happen at large churches, large church buildings that can like hold thousands of people. And they oftentimes have, like, really nice coffee places inside. I'm pretty sure some of them franchise Starbucks. And so, I mean, they don't really. It's normally something along the lines of Hebrews Cafe. I'll leave it there. Um, uh, but, you know, they're normally big, and they, they feel very inviting. You go into them, and, uh, you know, they've got a fireplace and, and seats to sit down, and then you go into the main sanctuary, and the lights, the cameras, the action, it's all there. The speakers are the best and brightest names that you can hear. And you might even know some of them if you listen to their podcasts nowadays. You can buy their books, and then you go to the breakout sessions, and they're in these really nice Spaces where you can leave your worries and concerns at the door and just be invested in, learn something, uh, get rejuvenated, all this different stuff. And all those things are super, super wonderful and helpful at different points. All of us in life need a shot in the arm every now and then to just get back on our feet. The conference I went to in Wakarusa, Indiana, wasn't like that. The church was probably a smaller building than ours, significantly so. They didn't have a band full of Nashville-trained musicians leading the music. The breakout rooms were basically any open space they could find to stuff people in. 
We were in one of the kids' rooms. I'm pretty sure there was a group of people in one of the breakouts that was in a closet. They just moved all the janitorial stuff out so that they could fit. I'm just kidding about that part, sorry. They did have a nice breakfast spread, though. The conference was not something from the optical standpoint that you write home about, but it also is the best conference I've ever attended before. And the reason was is because I think we attended this conference somewhere in the ballpark of 2018, and up to that point I had been doing groups and discipleship ministry for a few years. And I'd been in ministry for a longer duration than that, and I've, I've always had a knack for being able to work with people. And that's a good thing, except that sometimes when you think you have a knack for something, it can leave you vulnerable to being unopened to learning more and growing beyond. It's that ugly word, pride. It sets in. You think you know it all. And this conference managed to unsettle and uproot that for me. See, what happened was, over the course of the two days, uh, me and my group that went, we, we would go to this breakout room, and there were other people from other parts of the country that showed up there, and we never met them before. And what they did was they structured these breakout days to basically facilitate, uh, in real time, a real disciple-making group meeting. And it's really weird to be in a situation with people that you've never met before, and suddenly all of you that are in this room are studying the Bible deeper than you ever have in a group setting. You're being open about your life story, your highs, your lows. You're confessing sin. I mean, I I don't know about you, but like, if I meet someone for the first time, I'm at the grocery store or something like that, and they ask me how I'm doing, I'll probably be like, I'm okay or I'm good. I'm probably not going to be like, yeah, let me tell you about my week. Because they don't know me and I don't know them and I don't know that we're on the same page when it comes to sharing that stuff. And so I, I, you know, as we were going through this, I was like, I was kind of wowed by what was unfolding in this setting. Well, in the last couple sessions, what they did is they kind of opened the veil to why what was working was working. And they showed us the ground rules for being in good relationship with one another and the why behind why God cares about being in relationship with his people and his people being in relationship with each other. And what they were doing in this conference that no one expected to be that great when you walk in and see it's not like the other conferences you go to, is they showed you a different way. They showed you what happens when the best systems and rules are in place for relating with other people and how it can do wonders of change to the point that you meet people that you've never met before and you're going to depths that you would never go with people that you've never met before. And so, uh, in the aftermath of that, I started to either adopt or adapt some of the stuff 
that was learned. The ideas of laying ground rules in group settings and sharing this with group leaders when I'd have lunch with them and do all these different things. And suddenly it just, it not only changed the way I approached ministry and discipleship with people, but it started to change the way that our leaders in our church started to approach that. And there's something to this idea that even though there are many ways to do that relationship stuff, there are best practices. There's a better template. There's a right and a maybe not wrong, but a not as good way. And oftentimes in life, we come to a point where we get stuck with the idea that I've got tons of experience in this and my way is good enough and it makes me comfortable and I don't need to go outside of my box. Take typing, for instance. We're, we're, are any of you old enough to remember uh, Mavis Beacon? Did you ever have to take typing class? I know it's like, like kids now just know, like they literally come out of the womb and they're able to do it. But, um, but like, and, and Mavis, let me admit something. I did not do a good job of paying attention to Mavis. Um, I'm kind of like a looker and like I, like I, I kind of do it, but like the whole idea with typing class was you learn hand placement and you develop muscle memory with the keys so you don't even have to look and you can just type really fast. Now, when we think of typing today, we think about typing on a keyboard or maybe on a phone and there's all sorts of different typers. There's the, there's the hold the phone and single digit, see that? There's the this, you know? There's the one-handed typers on the keyboard. There's maybe the I'm angry at somebody online typer. And then there's the person that actually paid attention in Mavis speaking class. And they practiced a lot every day that they had to practice. Now, all of those ways get the job of typing done. But only one of them does it with speed efficiency, and more word and letter counts at a faster rate than the others. But most of us are comfortable with our own way of typing, right? And we're probably not going to go back to Mavis speaking because I don't even know that it exists anymore. Based off of the response in here, I'm going to guess no. To unlearn what it was that we have learned to do. Now, you're probably wondering, what in the heck does all of this have to do with the tabernacle? I'm glad you asked. We as a people have gotten so used to individualizing our faith, thinking about our faith on our own terms, thinking through how we're going to approach our faith on our own terms in ways that make us feel comfortable, that we have forgotten that we serve a God that loves us so much, that wants to interact with us and relate with us and be with us so much, that he set his own terms for how that's going to go down. And while the tabernacle for us as Christians today doesn't really matter much because most of us aren't putting a giant tent structure together and picking it up and going to the next place and putting it down again, as I hope for us to see this morning, 
It's what it reveals about the nature of God that matters. That he would put such a structure in place for the Israelites after bringing them out of Egypt. That it shows that he wants to be with his people. And that he has a good design for the way that they are to be with him. And while God is everywhere, he is not bound to a single place. And you can be with him anywhere, and he can be with you anywhere. There's something to be said about looking to his design and meeting him as he intended, and not just going our own way. Sure, other ways can get the job done, but we're missing something when we don't pay attention to God's plan, and we stick only with our own. And that's why we're going to look at the tabernacle today. So, oddly enough, we're going to end the book of Exodus today, but not end our series on Exodus, because we're going to go back to an earlier passage next week. So we're going to be in chapter 40 today, and we will read the beginning parts of chapter 40, and then I'm going to show a picture to talk about it, and then we're going to come back to the last verses of chapter 40, and then kind of uh, mosey along on our way. So just to give you a little bit more context here, last week we did the Ten Commandments. That was last week, right? Okay, thanks. Um, um, I was making sure you were paying attention. No, I'm just kidding. I'm making sure I'm paying attention up here. Anyway, uh, we did the Ten Commandments last week. So if you follow the book of Exodus past the Ten Commandments, you'll see that God gives Moses more laws and then sets up some structures for um, building up priests to serve uh, worship and communal efforts. And then in chapters 25 and 26 on through chapters 35, God begins to give instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Not just why, in fact, there's very little why, which is why those passages are really hard for me to figure out how to preach on sometimes. It's more just, here's the materials to use, here's how to put them together, here's how big or small they should be, this is the color that the object should be, and this is where you should place everything when it's done. Oh, and by the way, I'm God, so do it. That's kind of always the like background thing, whether overt or not. And then when you get to chapter 36 onward, by the instruction of Moses, because God had given the instruction to Moses, now Moses is giving the instruction to the people, um, and the people start to do the work, and they construct the tabernacle. And that's where we pick up in chapter 40 of Exodus. So beginning at verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Set up the meeting tent dwelling on the first day of the first month. Place the chest containing the covenant inside the dwelling. Hide the chest from view with the veil. Bring in the table and arrange its items. Bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar for burning incense in front of the chest containing the covenant. Set up the screen at the dwelling's entrance. Put the altar for entirely burned offerings in front of the entrance to, to the meeting tent dwelling. Put the wash basin between the meeting tent and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard all around, hanging up the screen at the courtyard gate. 
Then take the anointing oil and anoint the dwelling and everything in it. Make holy the dwelling and all its equipment, and it will be holy. Anoint the altar for entirely burned offerings and all its equipment. Make the altar holy, and the altar will be most holy. Anoint the wash basin with its stand and make it holy. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the meeting tent's entrance and wash them with water. Dress Aaron in the holy clothes. Anoint him and make him holy so that they may serve me as priests. Then bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them like you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing is to the priesthood for all time and every generation. Moses did everything exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Now, I don't know if you've read Genesis chapter 1 before. Anybody in here? I'm just flipping back to it here for a moment because there's something interesting here. When you get back to chapter 1, and God creates the earth, and He creates everything, And he uh, then instills uh, the Sabbath as a holy day. The same language used in the passage that we just looked at is the same Hebrew language behind what God did in creation. See, at the heart of God is, is this. God designed people to be in relationship with him and then to be in relationship with each other. Remember when he made Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone? So he created Eve. That was the plan. Now, if you read into chapter 3, they messed it all up. God then decided that he's going to call out a people and that this people group that he calls out are going to be the first step toward rectifying, redeeming, restoring what was lost because of the sin of the first couple and the sin of everybody thereafter. And while when we look at the tabernacle and we as Christians know about Jesus, we know the tabernacle isn't the great fix, but that's not the point. The point is the God behind it. You see, in the garden God dwelt and walked amongst the garden in the presence of Adam and Eve. And now God, through his very meticulous plans, if you didn't notice, did you get a little bit crossed up when we were reading all the different places God's telling Moses to put all the different stuff? If you were, take a look at these pictures here for a moment. So this is a reconstruction of the tabernacle. Uh, it's like someone was like hiding and took an aerial p- uh, picture in this little breakout of a mountain cave opening sort of deal. But if you go to the next picture here, this is an illustrative part. And this gives you an idea of where some of, at least, the things that God has told Moses to build looked and where they were placed. And each of them, and we don't have time, had significance to the Israelite people. But I want to mention these three things about this tabernacle. The first one is that the tabernacle was considered the tent of dwelling, which means it was the place that God, when he would come in the cloud, 
would rest upon the tabernacle and dwell amongst the people. Again, God is beyond being boxed in or tented into one location, but he chose to come down to the people that he has called out and rescued from Egypt to be with them. It's also known as the tent of meeting because it's the place where God at first would meet with Moses to give him further instruction, but as the priestly order was set up and as the priests were consecrated or purified along the way, they'd be able to come in and do their part in this process too. It was also the location where the community, through the priestly order, was able to fulfill its calls to worship. This tent was God's design for the wandering Israelites. They were a nomadic people. Did you know that in the ancient world, when shrines were built to those small little gods that existed in this world, these little statues or the bigger statues, oftentimes they were built in static, rooted places that weren't meant to go. But the design of the tabernacle was such that it was able to be picked up and taken to go with the people so that when they would go to their next place that God told them to go, they could set it up and establish it again. And then God gives Moses these instructions to put everything in place. And the most important thing is that at the end of it, in that last verse, it says that Moses did everything the Lord commanded. He took all these instructions, and there's plenty of them. You can read all the chapters leading up to that. And you can use your imagination, or you can pull up an image like this and look at how this thing was constructed. But Moses never stopped to say, hey, hey God, did you think about you know, putting this thing here instead? You know? Have you ever rearranged a room before and you're trying to figure out where should the lamp go? Is it going to block the couch and the view of the TV? Is someone going to run into the lamp when they come into the room from that angle? You know, all this different stuff. Moses didn't get into any of that. He says that he did as the Lord God said. And so when you think about what Moses did in his obedience to God, what God had him do, what comes to the forefront is that God desired to make a very specific way for him to dwell amongst his people, for him to interact amongst his people, and to lead his people to the places that they should go. All based off of this design here. And that brings us to the last verses in chapter 40. And we're really going to be picking up at the middle of verse 33. Sometimes the people that decided to put verse numbers don't do a great job of... They put ones in half. Anyway, that's beside the point. You don't need to get into that. So it says here in the second half of verse 33, when Moses finished all the work, the cloud covered the meeting tent, and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Moses couldn't enter the meeting tent because the cloud had settled on it. And the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Whenever the cloud rose from the dwelling, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. 
But if the cloud didn't rise, then they didn't set out until the day it rose. The Lord's cloud stayed over the dwelling during the day with lightning in it, or with, yeah, with, lightning, with lightning in it at night, clearly visible to the whole household of Israel at every stage of their journey. Now, I love this passage here because if you follow the rest, literally the rest of the Bible, you go through the story of David and of the kings and of the people of God, and you get into the New Testament and you look at the Gospels and you look at Jesus, there is a theme that runs again and again and again, and it's this. The people that are always marked as being good, faithful followers of Jesus Always let God take the lead and follow him. When David, before he gets into his big mess, is on the good side of his life that kind of goes in two ways, he's constantly praying to God for direction. Should I go into this battle? Should I hold off? It's God giving him the lead. Even Jesus, we constantly see him in the Gospels, breaking away from the crowds, breaking away from his ministry to sit and to pray to the Father. And he follows the lead of the Spirit, the Trinity, working in tandem. goes all the way back to this. God's glory came upon and dwelt on the tabernacle. And when he rested there, the people stayed put. And only when he stopped resting there, and was ready to go on the move, did the people go on the move. Which, uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the cloud doesn't pick up the tabernacle. So all the people that had to put it together in the first place got to take it down. Isn't that the best or worst part of camping? Anyway, I get this tent apart. Anyway, that's, that's why you should go glamping. Anyway, that's beside the point. This is what God... This is what God did to show his desire to be present with the people. So what does this mean for us? Well, here's the deal. If God desires to dwell amongst his people, if God desires to interact with his people, if God desires to lead his people, then we may not be lugging around a tabernacle. But the way that God has designed the life of the follower of Jesus to achieve those things is the best way for those things to be achieved. God desires to be with us. He desires to have us go as He goes, and He desires to go where we go. He doesn't want to abandon us Leave us to our own devices. But his ways are the best ways to follow. So what does that look like for us today? Well, according to the New Testament, number one, rather than God showing up at a tabernacle, he showed up in the form of a son. The Son of God came. And He was born of a virgin. And He grew in wisdom and stature. And He was baptized by John the Baptist. And He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
to face temptation. And he won that battle. And then the Spirit led him to his earthly ministry where he collected and called disciples and taught them about the kingdom, how to speak, how to live, how to love others. He didn't just teach them, but he showed them by example. And he was embraced by those that followed him. Some who followed him, even his twelve, misunderstood him and had to be course-corrected later. Sometimes the most nameless, faceless individual were the most faithful. They got it and they followed. But nevertheless, his own people rejected him and handed him over to the ruling power of the day to be crucified on a cross. But God did not leave his son in the tomb, but raised him on the third day, conquering once and for all sin and death and making a way back to God. No tent needed. And he didn't stop there. <laughs> I know that that's the part that I was at a, we were at an ice cream shop yesterday in Finley, Ohio, and there were gospel tracks there yesterday. That's not the end of the story, believe it or not. Because those disciples that got it wrong, but that Jesus loved enough to stick with them, even if they didn't stick with him, well, he met them where they were at in their hiding because he promised the Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit came and made its indwelling in the community of followers of Jesus and emboldened them and enlivened them to not only understand who Jesus truly was, but to go turn the world upside down with the gospel message. And it gets even better. That's still not the end of the story. Because as they made those disciples, it turns out that all of them started meeting together. Isn't this crazy? They prayed together. They listened to the apostles' teachings so that they had the teaching about Jesus right. They gave of what they had to meet the needs of one another and to help the ministry move forward. And they followed the lead of God. My friends, we don't need to worry about carrying around a tent. But God definitely is a God of order and design and best practices when it comes out to living out his faith, the faith that he calls us to. And it's all there. Believe in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit to commune with the brothers and sisters of the faith, and to go and make disciples. God did something new through his son Jesus, but God didn't change one bit. He has always desired to be with his people, to interact with his people, to care for their concerns, and to light the way to where he calls them to go. So whether you know where you're supposed to put the altar of incense or not, you do know the way to follow. And you do know the things that he says are best for not only you to grow in your faith, but to spur one another on to love and good deeds as well.
And here is the powerful thing. And this is what brings me back to that conference in Wakarusa, Indiana. Many of us in our world today have created a Christianity in our own image or to our own liking or to our own comfort. Yes, you can worship God on the mountaintop, but don't make it an either-or proposition. There is a way that God wants us to commune with Him and with fellow believers through prayer, through meeting in the church. Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering. Good job, you're all here. You didn't do it. So I don't even say any more about that. God made a way, a best way. Sure, if you worship Him on the mountaintop instead of showing up to the spaces and in the ways He designed, it's like you can get the texting done doing this or this or whatever it is, but it's not the same as the best practice. You're missing out. And so as we reflect on this, remember that God saved us for a purpose. Just like he brought the Israelites out of Egypt for a purpose. And he designed very meticulously and very orderly a way to live out that purpose for the Israelites. And in the same way and in a much bigger way, he designed a way for us to do life as disciples of the Son of God. Don't live a cheapened version of faith. The details may sometimes be hard to decipher, and they may be hard to stomach. But God desires to be with you, and he will be. And that makes it worth it. Each week we take communion because we remember the way that God made through his son Jesus. And I just basically went through a summary version of it, so I don't need to say it again. But I do invite you right now to take a moment and dwell on the way that God made. The way that God made us and the design for the way that He made for us to be right with Him, to grow in Him, and to spur one another on. Because He did that through his son Jesus and that's why we take communion to remember him so ponder that and in a moment we will take communion together as a church family
I invite you to take the bread of this cup and eat. This is his body which is given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is blood poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for bringing us together and for being with us. If there's anything as we come together each week, as the earliest disciples of Jesus did and as we still do today, we are reminded that you designed us to be in relationship with you and to love one another. And you have gone out of your way in so many ways and in this one major life-altering, world-upending way through your son Jesus that has made a way for us to not only have that need met, but to be part of it. And so we thank you, God, for an opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth, to hear your word, to remember your son Jesus as he commanded, and to do so in the presence of our brothers and sisters in faith. Help us to continue to remain connected to you in all the ways that you've invited us, and help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds, as your scripture says. And uh, just help us to know, as the song said this morning, that even when we don't see you working, and even when we don't feel it, that we know that we can always lean on you and that you've made a way and that you're always present with us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.